everyone. Happy Halloween. It's October 31st, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Uh, our guest today is Sophie Caron. Hi, Sophie. Hi. She is assistant professor in the School of Biological Science at the University of Utah. Her lab is working to understand sensory representations in the context of memory formation in the Drosophila fruit fly model organism. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got Lindsay McPherson. Hello. Hey, guys. So, flies, I guess that's kind of appropriate. Did you guys see the omen? Remember the flies? Yeah. Wasn't that the omen where the flies would come when the devil was nearby? Or was that the exorcist? Anyway, I'm trying to make a fly uh, entree. It is, it is Halloween, yes. Okay, yeah. okay. that was they my lame scary. attempt at trying to you should be... go with the actual movie, The Fly. The Fly. The fly. That's with right. That, no, that's too terrifying. The Jeff Goldblum thing. And help me, help me. Yeah. He was a more menacing than your average fruit yeah, fly, though. Those guys are yeah. friendly flies. That wasn't so. a fruit fly, anyway. It was a housefly. It was, yes. One of those it's dumb big, flies. Yeah. Big juicy one. <laughs> okay, so your work yes. uh, specifically, so it's on the mushroom body of yes. Drosophila melanogaster as opposed to other kinds of Drosophila, which hopefully we'll talk about some of these other uh, fruit flies. So, so the mushroom body is understood as an associative area where sensory representations are formed and stored and um, used to guide behavior. Um, so they're made up of Kenyan cells, and, and about 2,000 of those is what I, I guess is, the, is what, what is agreed upon as the number. That's and they receive their input through the projection neurons of the olfactory antenna lobe. Um, so a curious feature of the system is that the highly ordered odor-evoked sensory map within the glomeruli of the antenna lobe is then completely disordered at the next yes. stage of processing um, as it projects to the mushroom body. So can you tell us about that shift uh, from stereotype to random wiring and the importance of that in understanding yes. processing motor representations of the mushroom body. Yeah, so that was um, so that was one of the well, that was the finding that where everything started in a way because uh, I think there were a lot of discussion in the field whether how this map would be then transferred to higher brain centers. And um, if you were to talk to theoretical people, they would say they would suggest a randomness as a, a mechanism for associative centers simply because it really enables um, the system to encode as many representations that don't overlap. Um, and so to, to have more specificity in the, the system, and that appear to be very important for learning. So if you want to remember one representation as different from the other one, then randomization of input will help you to, um, to basically push these two representations uh, further away from each other. But then the biologists, I think, uh, we like to think as things more structured, and especially when it comes to the brain. So I think there were a lot of pushback from the field also just, um, and still is, um, so thinking about this system as more structured and completely random randomization of sensory input. So, um, but yeah, but I'm not sure so I'm answering your question. How, but did, yes. how, how could randomization, I'm right. sorry. <laughs> how, can, how can anything biological ever be random? There you go, yes. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so while, I think it depends on what you want to do with the signals. In this case, it's really you want to form a memory. And um, you have to think, what is a memory? So you, you go about the world. Different things could happen to you. So what this brain center has to do is to encode a particular experience. And so that experience will be very different from one individual to the next. And so with random uh, connection, what you really allow is to basically 
to wire the brain so that all possible scenarios, and in this case, all possible combination of glomeruli of the antenna lobe, could be encoded in at least a few cells that would then be able to encode that sensory experience, and then you can wire these cells to the desired output. So, um, so that's... Oh, so, yeah, I, think you know, I, I, if I tried to wire something randomly, I would fail. I'd need a random number lookup table if, to do it. If the brain wants to wire something randomly, yes. uh, I'm, tr- I'm sort of imagining how it would do oh, it, right? The, during can, development. The, can you, yeah, Kenyan cells would create their <laughs> postsynaptic yes. targets, and they would say, accepting anybody comes yes. along, and then axons would come along and and just accidentally bump into one of these things and form a synapse? So, yeah, so that's a great question, and that's actually something I think that now some people are, including Orlam, are interested in, um, in understanding, because at the developmental um, stage, it's really hard to conceive of a mechanism that will enable you to, to, to form that, to have perfect randomness. But we, know, we understand a little bit about like the way the projection neurons send their um, axonal boutons and the calyx of the mushroom body, which is where these connections are made. So they, they really have a distributed pattern of boutons, so they go into different zones and then send some boutons. And then the Kenyan cells themselves seems to have like this um, very um, uh, different morphology. So idiosyncratic morphology. So each Kenyan cell seems to, to send basically their dendrites in different region of that mushroom body. But what drives the decision and why, um, how do they decide to, you know, pick a partner over the other one? There'd have to be some decidedly non-random rules. Yeah. So for example, if an axon makes a synapse on a Kenyan cell, yeah. it should not just immediately make synapses on all the yes. other parts of that same Kenyan cell. So I think there will be some counting mechanism, for example, so that one cell should form at least two synapses, um, but that there's probably some noise also in the system, and I think that's why we start to see like this also, if we just count the number of input each Kenyan cells receive, that it's actually, it's, never, it's not fixed, it's actually quite a, a big range from 2 to 12, so. And did you see in your, in your study where you, you labeled from, what are those, like the calyx? Yes. Um, did you see that any time that you would get multiple from the same from the same glomerular list, you would get sometimes like more than would you get more than one on a on a calyx like two calyxes coming uh, innervated by the same glomerular list, or yeah. were they always? Segregate. Like if you got so one from DA one, you would never get another one. Yeah, DA1. so that we don't see. So it's really. Um, once we take the biases in consideration, it really obeys a. a, a um, random pattern, so a lack of structure. So it doesn't mean, so we see double, so mm-hmm. to the same glomerulus, triple sometimes, but they are increasingly rare, and as we see. So talk about that bias, because yes. you talk about this complete lack of structure, and that that actually increases the dimensionality, or the ability to encode different patterns and not have them interfere with one another. But yes. then there is this other factor, yes. where you have some glomeruli that are yes. more representative. So talk, yeah, talk about So that. yeah, so the way we think of it, it's basically, okay, so when the Kenyan cells form a connection, it's basically as if they were throwing the dice, and then, but the dice are loaded, so you have more um, chances to hit a six than you have to hit a one, for example. So there are some glomeruli that just seem 
represented more often in the number in terms of number of connections. So there are no groups of glomeruli in our hands that seem to uh, connect to the same canyon cells, but there are some glomeruli that form simpler more connections. And, and so, it's, is it not based or, on how many neurons are actually formed like glomeruli? No. So that's the other thing. So so there so there are different. So for all the different fifty glomeruli, there are a vast number also of, of neurons that are a distribution of neurons that innervate each one of them. So sometimes it's only one, and it can be as many as six, but there is no correlation. Mm. So for example, one of the underrepresented um, glomerulus, the, the geosmin um, sensing glomerulus, um, we we see there, there are four neurons um, carrying or basically innervating that glomerulus, but some of the overrepresented, there may be just one neuron. And so, yeah, so, so that's why we think that part of the bias is the biology there, we can start understanding it or um, asking specific questions just because uh, we think, for example, that the number of boutons that these projection neurons will form simply change between these different glomeruli. So that's and, and you investigating. Do you want to, this is not published yet, though, the ethological. No. So, no, but so, so what do you think the ethological, is there any, any sort of significance to this bias? Yeah, so that's, so, yeah, so that's when we started looking at the biases. So when I started my lab, we, you know, we had this data set of randomness and then trying to think first about like, okay, what is the mechanism for setting up these random connection? And then it, it gets very difficult to conceive of a mechanism, right? So I decided to focus our attention rather on the biases because, you know, that's a structure and it's easier to understand structure. Um, but so when we look at the glomeruli that are overrepresented or underrepresented, then we started seeing a common team where the underrepresented one seemed to, um, to be activated by odors that we knew elicited or elicit strong innate behavior. So for example, geosmin, it's an odor uh, made by toxic bacteria and it's um, highly repulsive to fly. So they, they, they don't have to learn it. They just have this innate uh, repulsion towards geosmin and same for other odors. Uh, whereas the overrepresented ones seem to be things or um, associated with glomeruli that would detect odors that are very common in the expected ecology of a fly. So for example, the pheromone um, CVA we knew was involved in many different um, behaviors so from courtship to aggression to aggregation. So we thought, well, maybe this is a way to just uh, prioritize certain channels so that you can form richer representation using these channels. And so that's, yeah. So, but there is also a projection to lateral horn that is yes. concerned with innate. Uh, behaviors. So yes. So these are sort of diverging uh, uh, projections, or how so, do you? So so yeah. So they, there's a bifurcation in the in the circuit. So you the projection neurons connect to the mushroom body or the lateral horn, and so we think that the lateral horn is involved only in innate uh, behavior. So. The idea is that when, uh, so when you have a strong innate behavior, you basically want to prune your connections to the mushroom body so that you don't interfere with that innate circuit from the lateral horn. So presumably the biases are opposite in the lateral horn. Yeah, well that's, yeah, that's a great question. That's also something we would like to be mm -hmm. able to look at, but the tools there are not that great yet. So we need, yeah. That's an interesting mechanism that you don't just have the lateral horn directly inhibiting mushroom body. It's uh, yeah. it's from the origin point of the so yeah. Horn. So so we don't know whether point of convergence, but we think there will be a point of convergence where 
basically the fly brain can tell, um, so can measure what it knows from evolution and what it knows from experience and then decide on, you know, what's the best behavior to adopt in that, in that specific moment. But, yeah. So the learning could override some kind of uh, nat uh, unconditioned response to the stimulus, possibly. Yes. Do flies do that? Can, can the flies learn to not do their normal unconditioned response? Yeah, so that, I mean, as far as I know, nobody really um, looked at these strong innate odors and then trying to reverse the valence of these odors. But, um, but yeah, but they can learn a great deal. They can learn things and also relearn them as the, um, as the, uh, with the opposite behavior. So I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. If, um, right, because in, in your initial explanation of like the attractive versus and the aversive, if you pair them with an odor, right, in, you could you could potentially have them relearn yes. after extinction. So then, yeah. how how do you think you know that? That would then work. I mean, obviously, it's downstream of the lateral horn. Yeah. But where where does that plasticity kind of come in? So the plasticity. So right now, like the favorite uh, sign for plasticity is really at the output of the mushroom body. So where um, so so where the, the mushroom body output neurons um, are, are connecting to well, the, the canine cells are connecting to the mushroom body output neurons. We know there's extensive um, dopaminergic signal release at that output region. And we know that the, the output neurons can uh, basically modify the response to different odors after learning. So that we understand that part of, uh, of learning. So it seems to be there, but there are most likely other um, parts in the brain that are also modulated by yeah, learning. Um, but yeah. One feature of this that gets repeated in lots of brain structures is this idea of taking uh, one layer and making projections into a layer that has a lot more cells yes. in it. And the Kenyan cells are like that, right? Yes. And then that allows you to create these groups that are unique for particular patterns in the first layer. Yes. But then that layer that has lots of cells always end up converging <laughs> into a layer that's got very few cells. Yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of magic. Whenever I hear the description of how that works, that last stage seems like, magic to me. How do you take all of the information you had in this really large yeah. layer of cells and somehow make something meaningful in a really small group of cells? But it's sparse sure. in yes. that layer of 2,000 Kenyan cells, right? So it's not a really so rich is, sensory representation necessarily, right? Yeah, well, it is sparse, but it maybe is enough for the system to carry on, but it's really, you can see just at the level of number of neurons. So when you consider that you have 50 types of different projection neurons, and then 2,000 Kenyan cells, you know, depending who you're talking to, you could describe them all as uh, two different, uh, 2,000 different types because they all have like different connectivity. And then it goes back down to 30 um, output neurons. So there is something about, yeah, so that going from a low dimension to a high dimension to be able to extract as much um, or to, to make your signal as different as possible, but then, yes, the, then you can reduce that dimension again. And, yeah, I don't know. What's, why? <laughs> it's a recurrent theme, I think, and a recurrent motif. If we look at the cerebellum, for example, yeah. there must be something very efficient about it. And also, if it, if it flies in a natural environment and it's not just sensing one, you know, dilute odor at the, with this very precision, we've got so many odors interacting so 
the amount of Kenyan cells that must be activated by all of these different yes. odorants in, in combination must be fairly extensive. And then to distill all that back down again to, to yes. 30 so, output neurons. Yeah, so maybe there, there has to be something to do with yeah, categorization and then just, yeah, there's only so many, so many behavior maybe also fly in the dark. But, so sometimes yeah. when I ask that question to people, they tell me, oh, well, in the, in the small cell group, in the third level, there's a temporal code. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's an idea also that was favored by some people in the field also. Um, the, yeah, I, we don't, we don't see it per se. Well, we don't do really recording from that brain region, but uh, but that would be interesting because that's one way to enrich differently the representation. It's just to take that temporal code into consideration. But then someone has to read that code also, I guess. Uh -huh. so. <laughs> so are these are, are are those connections with the output layer of the mushroom body? Are those dendritic and complicated spatial connections to, oh. to small number of neurons, or are those just no, so those set. are actually super well organized. Again, so that so you go from organization to chaos to super organization again. So it's basically uh, the the lobes of the mushroom body are uh, div um, are divided into fifteen different compartments, and then each compartment is innervated by one specific output neuron. And then on top of that, you have a third neuron providing dopamine. Uh, uh, the dopamine signal, and so we know that there are um, compartments that are attractive, compartments that are repulsive, so depending on the dopamine signal, where is it coming from? Is it from a, a good experience or a bad experience? And so you have a high level of organization there that seems to be well um, suited for the mushroom body, so that you can imagine you build your representation of you know 200 Kenyan cells firing to a specific um, stimulus, but then that um, whatever you had to learn with the sugar reward can then be wired into one one system that managed attraction. So maybe so. you don't need much information anymore. Who cares what it was yeah. that I smelled? All <laughs> I know is I want to get away from it. Yeah. And that's really all that information that needs to be left. Yes, yes. I yes, I agree. But that's again, yeah, simplifying okay. the system. But yes, that's a good idea. So Every, I've only ever heard about mushroom body discussed in uh, in terms of olfaction, but there's all this other multisensory stuff yeah. going on. So yes. tell us. So yeah, so the field for the longest time has uh, focused on the mushroom body being this olfactory center because it's really, especially in the fly, the Drosophila Nodogaster brain, it sits perfectly at the, um, in the olfactory circuit. It, you receive, it receives massive input from the olfactory circuit. But there are also these, um, what we call these accessory Kenyan cells that uh, receive uh, mostly visual input and also as, um, as our data show, but also other, other people, uh, other people's data. So, um, and that's not so surprising because when we go to other insects like bees, um, we know that they have specialized calyces, uh, so specialized population of Kenyan cells that are uh, dealing with uh, taste information, visual information, and olfactory information. So it, it is a center that seems to, to be able to gather all that um, sensor information and then... Have you seen any somatosensory? Pardon me? Any somatosensory? Somatosensory, not that we know of. Um, there are some, definitely some weird neurons that we, we don't know what they are doing. They could be somatosensory, but... Um, weird uh, means yes. that you can't 
you, you, you don't let, know what sensory modality they are? Because yeah. you can identify, you can find the neuron in the, in the fly's brain, yes. but you just don't know what that neuron is about. Is exactly. That right? That's what you call weird. So we, yes, we, we call, actually we call them orphan neurons <laughs> because for all the other neurons, they, they, they project their dendrites into a clear sensory center. So for example, the optic lobe, we know it um, deals with visual information or um, um, the SEZ deals with the gustatory information or the olfactory, um, the antenna lobe deals with olfactory information, but these neurons extend their dendrites in a region that is poorly characterized and that hasn't been associated with any um, sensory modality thus far. So, so, so it could be some sort of internal state or something like that rather than a sensory. It could be. Input. Yeah, it could be. And it forms actually one of the major input into that uh, population of Kenyan cells we're interested in. So we want to figure that out. Yeah. Especially if they're <laughs> yeah, fed or, or, or starved flies, they probably react to odors very differently if, yes. if they're searching for food or if they're already well fed, right? Absolutely, so That would yes. be really impor important information for the fly to know yeah. to decide whether it wants to be attracted to an odor or, or avoid it and go mate or something else. <laughs> exactly. So how do you select for, yeah, yeah. these specific, um, but yeah, so I'm, but I'm sure that some of that stuff would probably also be like neuromodulatory with probably neuropeptide acting on the whole system at once. But, um, but yeah, those are all fantastic questions. And we can, you know, that's the beauty I would say of the flight system is that we can retake a system approach into asking these questions now. So it's, yeah, it's exciting. Do the non-olfactory Kenyan cells converge onto the same set of neurons yes, at the next level? Yes, they do. So actually, so they share the same output neurons. So yeah, so that's why so we... So they're all part of the same decision somehow. They are, but it is, it is uh, curious. Well, maybe not that curious, but that they exist as different populations. So they really have, their input is completely separate. So there's something about not mixing olfactory input with visual input. And even in the visual system, it seems now that we have these two populations of um, Kenyan cells dealing with different types of visual input. So that's, yeah, that probably says something about keeping things separate, not mixing everything together. Also makes, makes it pretty clear the timing is clearly going to be an issue of when these inputs are right in and for the plasticity to yeah. matter. Yeah. That's correct, especially, yeah, because we know the Kenyan cells need coincidence input. So, so the, but the lobes and how they're arranged, can you explain, so are they, are the different modalities segregated by lobe? Because I read oh, through some of that and I didn't. Yeah, so, so that's a bit more um, complicated. So there are um, five different lobes of the mushroom body, and usually Kenyan cells innervate either one or two of these lobes. So we can recognize three major population of Kenyan cells. What alpha. is a lobe? I mean, a mushroom, if I'm picturing the mushroom, the, the mushroom <laughs> yeah. I don't normally see, I guess there are lobed mushrooms, but I was picturing one yeah. that was just an iceberg. <laughs> just with mushroom. one lobe. Yeah, I guess that's where the um, analogy to the mushroom fails. Uh, but <laughs> it breaks down a bit. It breaks down, yeah, so it's a like, root system, I guess, or big roots. But, um, but yeah, so you have these five lobes, and so we can recognize the alpha, beta, Kenyan cells, alpha, prime, beta, prime, Kenyan cells, and gamma, Kenyan cells. And that's, again, in Drosophila. But, um, but so the different populations, so most of the olfactory Kenyan cells, they're, they're by far the, the vast majority of these, uh, of the Kenyan cells, so there are 19 
hundred cannon cells in total. So, and if you think that there are two thousand cannon cells in total, that only leaves like about hundred for the other visual populations. But um, but one population of visual neurons go to the the gamma lobe where it receives. So the gamma lobe also has a lot of um, olfactory canyon cells, and the other population goes to the alpha-beta um, lobes, and so, so that also is populated by other olfactory um, projection neurons. So that leaves only the alpha-prime-beta-prime lobe as the only olfactory um, lobes, but yeah. So it's not so, simply looking at the mushroom body doesn't really tell us how, yeah. The, it, it starts so we can start to understand that yeah there might be something about keeping these populations separate but uh, but why is that we don't know <laughs> but yes so there there are clues in looking at other species yes so talk 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 us about that yeah so so that's another Drosophila sorry of Drosophila other, other species of yeah not rodents but like within the Drosophila um, yes. phylogeny so so that's something yeah that uh, I think a lot of um, Drosophila neuroscientists are doing now because we have this great natural experiment in a way where you have all these different species of Drosophila that exist that have specialized on in specific ecology, feeding on a specific fruit or having to deal with things like season or, you know, very different uh, stimuli from the outside world. So, um, so when we found that uh, the biases might be um, correlated or might reflect the expected ecology of a fly, then we thought, well, you know, we can do two things. We can change the biases and see if that affects, you know, in, in any way the, the way they perceive the world, which is kind of hard. Or we can just go and pick flies that have different expected ecology and then see if the biases will shift accordingly to what we know from their ecology. And so we decided to do the second just because we have great collaborators in uh, Switzerland who were making the tools that we need to, uh, to map these connections. And, um, and so, so that was the first step to, to test this idea. And indeed, it seems that the biases, so some of the biases are, um, are kept, they are, are constant across the two species. So the, the other species is Trosophila sichelia, which is um, very, has a very different lifestyle than Menadogaster. So it's specialized to feed on one fruit, the noni fruit, which is um, toxic for any other flies, but not to Sichelia. And, um, and, so, and so we do see a shift in the biases toward the glomeruli that are detecting the odors made by that fruit. So it seems to correlate, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's still correlative. So we would like to, yeah, to, to test it in a more functional way. But, but it is, I mean, that's how we, we think of these different species. It's really, it's the same brain, but it has adapted to, um, to perform different tasks in different environments. So it has, it has some of the answer. So, yeah. So rather than doing complicated genetic screens, and we can just go to the natural experiment. But, yeah. So the other day, I, I'm sorry. The other day I read that the Drosophila connectome had been Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Gerald so, Roman, he just presented at SFN this presidential yeah, so it seems lecture. Like a lot of your, uh, 
a lot of what you're doing is looking at connectivity. So yes. do you never have to do that again because the complete connectivity That's what is, Jerry always is tells me. You don't have to do this again. <laughs> but but yeah, so I would say yeah, that the fly connectome is great. It's um it's gonna be a complete story. We especially you know like if it if the the connectivity mechanisms that we, we find out, if they can be verified through different mechanisms, that's great. Um, the, the only problem is that it takes time, it takes a lot of money, and I think so they, they, they did it for one brain. But the technique that we developed, really what it enables us is to survey um, different brains. So we can, you know, for example, we, right now we're using it to look at different species and how the brain or the connections might be affected in different species, but we can also now start doing mutants, for example, if we block a certain pathway, um, if we, you know, um, inactivate or silence half of the sensory of the olfactory sensory neuron, do we see any change in connectivity? So I would say both approaches are valid. I, I, I think, you know, um, doing a connectome is not always the best way to go to ask or to, yeah, to answer If you were to start all over now but and yes. you wanted to just know the connectivity of the Kenyan cells, to know the stuff that you found yeah. out already, yes. would you be able to do that sort of in the computer, like just pick a Kenyan cell and then pick its branch, yes. find the one, yeah. fill it, and then find out where it goes, could you Yeah, do so that? that's the promise of, uh, yeah, Janelia, so that they are coming up with algorithms, so they reconstructed the connectivity so that we can now walk away into the brain. So yeah, so that will simplify our lives much um, better than doing screen to again, like finding the neurons that are connecting to a specific center. So, so that, yeah, so that's So it really does help. make a lot of experiments unnecessary. I mean, your experiment's already yeah. finished, so. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. it doesn't make yours unnecessary, yeah. but other experiments like that might never need to be done again. Yes. Well, yeah, depending how you see it. I mean, if you want, again, to compare different backgrounds or different, um, you know, the role of a specific gene in, connect in connectivity, then you need to perturb the system and to be able to measure something out sure. of it. So, but yeah, so I, I think it's just, yeah, the way I see it is that it's, it simplifies our life so that we can start asking more complex questions. And he'll be a great tool. Yeah. But he's only got half of the brain and only from a male fly. I was kind of mad that he was <laughs> a male fly. <laughs> I, think they yeah, I think they started with a female brain and then they dropped it on the floor. So I think he <laughs> and only half the brain. And the fly half. is fine, but half of its brain. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. I need the whole brain. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think it will be a great resource. But yeah. But it's it, just like when they they put out like the, the collection of uh, gal four line that now everybody is using in the fly field. There was a lot of pushback at the beginning also, just saying, oh, you know, we, it's going to take the job out of the fly neuroscientists. But yeah, it's not. There's always more work to do. And, you I'd know, be the super happy was, to have a tool like that. I mean, right, right now, if I had it for the mouse, and because I, I have a lot of just simple... Mm -hmm. connectivity questions so so I was kind of picturing what the tool would look like you know if you pick a Kenyan cell and then you'd see its dendrites yeah and then you could follow out to find a claw and then you'd find a presynaptic element in that claw yeah and then you could just seed fill it right and then yes. pop, zoom out and see every cell yeah and that's how it's gonna work that's how that's the promise yes so that's um, it's basically gonna be computer program that you can walk your way through into this one Amy brain of a male fly. Sounds huge. <laughs> it's huge. <laughs> it is. And I think, you know, we, we always compare to the, the field of C. elegans and how 
you know how they could really benefit from that um, from that tool. So it's great, and it's as he says also, it's tedious work that not a lot of people want to do. So uh, yeah, so I think it's gonna it's gonna push us in differently in new directions. So I welcome it. How much spatial information is critical to the connectomic stuff? I don't really know much about it because it seems like what you've shown is really that like doesn't matter. It's really about the ratio of connectivity. So yeah. you have these hardwired sensory things that sort of come genetically coded, then it's sort of experience dependent how things wire up as long as there's this ratio that's maintained. Yes. Um, so so yeah, so that's why also having one brain is Maybe not as helpful to know is that like just particular to this one yeah, brain, the the, of that the, brain. Yeah, yeah so you to. you need to survey many yeah many different individuals, which yeah it's again harder to do when you're gonna reconnect or reconstruct a single brain. But yeah, robot grad students. That's the, that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, well, those are very hard questions to answer <laughs> using the old methods too. Yeah. But the effort that goes into one of these experiments, like your experiment, yeah. you, we, the pain is over. You don't think about it anymore. <laughs> but at the time, it was a lot of tr trouble to get every single answer that you were looking for. Yeah. And the idea that it would be tedious to, to fool around in that computer reconstruction, it would be tedious too, but it would be less, less tedious, less likely I to know. fail. Yeah. Although they are fun to do or filling, so yeah. it's you yeah. Had a, you I really have my, enjoyed I, those I talked to well, I talked to my students. So when I was a postdoc, I did one connectivity matrix, and now I have a student in my lab, and she did three, which wow. is like really. Uh, well, you worked out all the hard parts, right? <laughs> yeah, let's be clear. These are like six. These are the ones that are like seven hundred. Yes, yes. So uh, she's she's really good at it, and I was um, talking to her yesterday, and she um, because she's you know in the process of thinking about the next step, and then she was like, well. I but I really want to make another one. <laughs> Just like, yeah, I know they She's they are fun. She, you <laughs> it's know, not working. You get one figure out of it. You right? just get one figure, <laughs> but at the same time, you have a survey of the whole system, how things are connected, and um, it, and the actual experimental scope is actually fun. You just you know feel your neurons, and then you you read the antenna load. So so yeah. So I think um, yeah, it depends who you're asking. I guess is the answer. But yeah. Going going back, so from from the very you know stereotyped glomerular connectome structure to the unconnected, right? There's the to get to the glomerulus, they have to have these specific interactions. Yes, and those are the same neurons, right? That have this very significant, like specific yeah. code. They have that code imprinted on them. Do they maintain it or do they lose it? I, like how? And then and then they are then they're able to kind of make random connections with the next yes. projections. So. Do you think that they that they lose track of where they are, or is that that's only for the the first yeah. connection, and and, and it's they not retain? at all in, involved in the second connection? Or do you think there's something that's still maintained about that identity that can affect how it's connecting to the next? Yeah, uh, so, so that's projection? interesting, and so. I would say that they, they probably, so if you look in the lateral form, for example, the projection neurons form very, um, uh, so patterns that are very similar across different projection neurons, although it can be shifted, but usually the number of branches and where the branches are going. But if you look in the mushroom body, um, it, it seems that there's a, 
more diversity there in their projection pattern. So they, they form, they tend to retain that identity, I think, in the number of boutons they would each form, so these um, synaptic boutons. Um, and so if you look at uh, underrepresented uh, Projection neurons, for example, they tend to form only a few boutons, and that's true for, you know, between different individuals. But if you look at something that has more boutons, then um, they rarely would you see two flies alike in the number of boutons. So, it, so there's something about bouton number, I think. So there might be like a, a bouton promoting factor that... Uh, maintains the identity of the, that is given by the glomerulus. So if you're a DA1 glomerulus, then you want to form more than if you're a DA2 glomerulus. But yeah, but what that factor is, I don't know. And then there's also obviously a lot of noise in the system where um, maybe you know how many boutons you have to form, but where you're going to form them is not really important. So, so yeah. I know these yeah. questions. I really and then there, and there's all these developmental questions like yes. how does the the claw form? Is it is it promoted by you know the presence of the you know projecting cell or is it formed first and then says come here? I, I yeah, think, like like what what chicken or the egg kind of uh, question on which side is it? Yeah, so and who that's is it directing okay. who or or is there any direction whatsoever? What? Yeah, no, exactly. So I mean, that, yeah, that's a fantastic question. It's just I I guess we need um, better. A better understanding of the development of this system, as you said, because you know obviously this decision is made sometime during development. Um, yeah, and it's yeah, it's great because I, I was trained as a developmental biologist also, so I, I'm happy to to be uh, brought back to these questions. But yeah, are, are but these are, are the the sensory neurons like? The, your taste cells that re have a regenerating cycle and have to rewire, or no? No, no, no. I don't think so. Okay. Thankfully, no. <laughs> that would be a, that would be an extra mess. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, yes, no. The, the fly brain, yeah, it's not as plastic in terms of new neurons, but yeah, it seems to be fixed. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you for joining us, Sophie. Kahn. Thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.